This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today. There's a lot going on. Obviously, there's a crisis in Sudan right now, which we won't have time to get to, but eventually we'll be sorting through all those issues. And there is a lot going on in Palestine right now. We have breaking news. Unfortunately, Palestinian activist and leader uh, Sadr Adnan has died on his 86th day of a hunger strike in a in an Israeli prison. It's un, unprecedented the lack of medical attention that he's received. He's gone on multiple hunger strikes. Essentially, the Israeli uh, military and uh, prison system let this man die from a hunger strike. And uh, we're going to be talking about that. Currently, you know, there's about 5,000 Palestinians who are, who are in jail right now, men, women, and children, 1,900 of which are in administrative detention, men, women, and children. These are catastrophic conditions for Palestinians. And Hadar Adnan, is, uh, it's devastating that they let him die this way. We're also going to be talking about U.S. House of Representatives uh, Speaker, the Speaker Kevin McCarthy, at a time when the entire world is shunning Benjamin Netanyahu and the apartheid state. You have uh, Kevin McCarthy going to Benjamin Netanyahu and basically celebrating the 75th birthday of the apartheid state. We're going to be talking a little bit about that. But before we do all that, Jamal, we're going to be uh, watching uh, a really amazing interview you did with Oueda Araf. She's facing a smear campaign by the Jewish Community Relations Council and the American Jewish community who are decrying her, again, because of her First Amendment right to be critical of the apartheid state. They're saying that she has anti-Israel rhetoric. She was speaking in Detroit at Bloomfield Hills High School in a day-long event on equity and diversity. And she spoke about her experience uh, confronting these issues. And uh, it's a really important interview that we'll, we'll listen to Hawaii and Utah. Yeah, we'll listen to Hawaii, Jess. But uh, here is something. I mean, this is, of course, your home state and your <laughs> old neighborhood, Detroit. But think about it. You're supposed, as a Palestinian-American, to speak about your experience as a Palestinian-American or as a Palestinian, your parents, your, uh, you know, your immigration without mentioning an Akba apartheid without mentioning an occupation without mentioning an apartheid I mean think about it just just you know for for our listeners here to think about that so anyway let's uh, watch uh, this very important interview in mid-march when Huayda Arraf was invited to be part of a panel at Detroit's Bloomfield Hills High School's day-long event on equity and diversity, she spoke to her experience growing up as a Palestinian-American. She included the time she lived in Palestine helping to organize peaceful actions of resistance against Israel's expanding oppression and occupation of Palestinian land and lives. Within 24 hours, a smear campaign was launched against Araf by both the Jewish Community Relations Council and the American Jewish Committee decrying her so-called anti-Israel rhetoric. This criticism was taken up and conflated with anti-Semitism by the local Reform Temple Israel. Although not present at the event, school superintendent Pat Watson supported their grievance and suspended the school principal. No specifics were given to support the accusations. 
Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Huwaida Araf. She is a Palestinian-American civil rights lawyer and activist. In, two, in 2022, she ran for election to the U.S. House to represent Michigan's 10th Congressional District. Huwaida, welcome again to Arab Talk. Thank you for having me, Zamal. Always good to be with you. So talk about this student organized assembly. What was the focus uh, and what perspective did you offer? Sure. First of all, I think the initiative is a wonderful one. It was started by students following a string of racist incidents at the local high school a couple of years ago in the fall of 2021. And so a group of students got together and planned an assembly uh, trying to uh, expose students to different views in an attempt to increase awareness about the harmful effects of racism and, uh, and of course, to, you know, in the goal of, of seeking more understanding and acceptance of diversity. So this was the second year of the assembly. Again, it was student-organized, student-run, and I was asked if I would speak about my experiences growing up uh, with racism and discrimination. I told the students that I didn't have very many stories about my high school days, but I could speak in more detail about my experience confronting racism and discrimination in my work campaigning for Palestinian rights. And they said that would be perfect. And the event was planned. I was one of five speakers. There was me, two African-Americans, one Asian-American, and one transgender person. And we each spoke for seven minutes in four assemblies, one for each grade of the high school, 10, 11, sorry, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And I spoke about why my parents came to this country. My mom was actually almost nine months pregnant with me when my parents left Palestine. And they left because they wanted their kids to have freedom and, and opportunity, things that aren't available to Palestinians living under Israeli military occupation. And I was lucky to have a, a privileged childhood, uh, to not face soldiers on a daily basis going to school. I um, told them a little bit about my growing up. And one thing I said is while I was in my elementary years and through high school, I actually really tried to fit in and did not want to stand out and so did not share my culture with my with my fellow classmates. And only later did I come to realize that that is a true loss when we're talking about such a, a diverse country and how much we can benefit from learning about other cultures. But I just tried to fit in and be very white growing up. And it wasn't until college that I came more into my Palestinianness. And after college, I decided to move to Jerusalem to learn more about what was happening and see if I could make a difference. Because I knew that I had opportunity in the United States because of the sacrifices that my parents made, opportunity that many Palestinians don't get. And I believe that with that opportunity comes responsibility. So what could I do? I moved to Jerusalem after college. Initially, it was to work for a conflict resolution program that brought kids together, Israeli and Palestinian kids. And I told the students this, that it's great to talk and to learn about one another. But one thing I learned in my time working for this organization is that it's not enough. It's not enough 
to just say that you have a friend from the other side. And what happens in a lot of these programs is that they're ma they make people feel good about having friends and talking, and it it stifles any kind of action that needs to be taken in order to dismantle the structures that actually divide people and cause the violence. And I told the students that Palestinian and Israeli kids got to become best friends. But then when you take the kids home to the Israelis' home to their towns and cities that are built on the ruins of Palestinian villages, and then you take the Palestinians home and they have to go through checkpoints under the guns of Israeli soldiers that could very well be the brothers or the sisters of their new Israeli best friend. And these kinds of things, these structures, uh, and again, dismantling them aren't addressed by these programs. And what happens even worse is that these programs come to be taken as an alternative for actually taking concrete action. So I, I left this program and I co-founded the International Solidarity Movement. This is what I shared with the students that the International Solidarity Movement calls for people from all over the world, no matter what country, what political persuasion, what religion, uh, what ethnicity, to come and stand with Palestinians in their liberation struggle. To stand with Palestinians, not because they're anti-Israel or anti-Jewish, and in fact, and I stress this point, many, many people that came to work with the ISM were Jewish, Jewish American, we had Jewish Israelis, Jewish Europeans, because I told the students, this and Palestinian oppression, it's not Palestinians versus Israelis or Jews versus Muslims and Christians. That's not the what's happening. What's happening is that you have a system of oppression, you have oppression and occupation, and you have what Palestinians are calling for freedom, equality, liberation. And if you stand with freedom, then you can come and stand with Palestinians. And that thousands of people came, and I had the privilege to work with them in confronting policies that harm Palestinian human rights. This is the generality that I spoke into the, to the students. I didn't go into very many detail. In one of the assemblies, in the very first one, I did go into a little bit more detail um, because I thought it important to talk about Rachel Corey. It was two days before the 20th anniversary of her killing. So I briefly mentioned Gaza and what's happening in Gaza and read one of Rachel's emails about her perspective uh, from Gaza and then let the students know that she was killed and this, uh, you know, two days uh, later would mark the 20th anniversary of her death. Now, the principal did pull me aside after the first assembly and told me that it might be a little bit too political. Some students were uncomfortable because many students and families have relations or ties to Israel. And I told the principals that that shouldn't matter. What's happening in Palestine is, is a war crime, is, is crimes against humanity. I was asked to speak about my perspective there, and these are my experiences. And he did say that he wanted the students to not shut me out, and therefore, if we can try to make it a little less political, so I, I didn't argue. I said, fine, I won't talk about Gaza. So in the second, third, and fourth assemblies, I I didn't talk about Gaza or, or Rachel. I the, the rest of the message stayed the same, and in all four assemblies, I left the students with a very, I felt, positive message, which was, no matter what your background, don't let 
the forces that try to divide people based on our differences win. Always remember that every person deserves the same kind of freedom, equality, and dignity and rights that they want for themselves and that they deserve. And if these students keep that in mind and remember to be kind and conscientious every day in their homes, in their communities, and as they go out into the world, they will really help make this world a much kinder, gentler place. So it was an overall, just a few minutes about my experience. All that was said in, in under seven minutes with a final message that, you know, to work together and to lo not let our differences cause any kind of hate and division, to work together to make sure that everyone has the same kind of rights and is able to live free and with dignity. And I thought it was well received for the most part. And I was very surprised. Like when you said within 24 hours, I was just bombarded with news about, you know, a press release that was put out condemning the school for allowing me to talk to students and calling me anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, and all of these lies that were perpetrated by people and organizations that weren't even at the top. Um, and it spiraled from there. Following that, there was an emergency school board meeting where countless mm. people got up to just make horrific acts. Well, that's, that's what I was going to ask you about uh, next, because uh, you've experienced being attacked before uh, for fact-based uh, criticism of Israel's human rights abuses. And that's my next question. What was uh, so unusual about how this attack unfolded? Yes, that is true. In, uh, in my years campaigning for Palestinian rights, you have, and I've been subjected to, you know, these forces that are just avid Israel supporters that are apologists for Israel, and they just uh, denigrate, dehumanize, and attack Palestinians and anyone that tries to make a case for Palestinian rights. So I've been called everything. Uh, I'm used to that, but I'm used to it coming from, you know, these uh, radical voices. They will keep doing that. What shocked and disturbed me and, and a lot of others is the, the uh, speed and the extent to which the school administration uh, succumbed to the pressure to denounce me. So on the same day, but before the day was over, the principal who in my interactions with him was very, uh, very kind, very um, personable and we had good interactions. Uh, he put out an email apologizing to the community that one of the speakers, me, although he didn't personally name me, um, went off topic is what he said, mm -hmm. that I diverted from the topic that I need to speak upon, which wasn't true. And then he apologized or stated that they condemn any form of of speech that attacks people based on their religion, insinuating that I said anything that could have been taken as hate speech or speech that attacked anybody. Uh, even though he didn't name me, it, it was very obvious and it suggested something that just didn't happen. So that was disappointing. And the following day, because the same people that attacked me thought that his email, the principal's email was not specific enough because it didn't name me. The superintendent put out a much longer email that then uh, 
specifically said that I engaged in anti-Semitic rhetoric well, and promising to and apologizing for not doing better, promising to vet future speakers and and not allowing mistakes like this to happen again. So the the again the speed and the extent to which school administrators succumb to this hate and, and campaign of lies was alarming, and I was adamant that we couldn't let this pass. Um, fortunately, we have a, a number of people also that contacted me disturbed, including the Jewish Voice for Peace organization in Detroit, the Detroit branch, and wanted to do something about it also. So we worked together. Uh, they put out a very strong statement condemning the the bigotry that come came from those that were spreading lies and and asserting, obviously, that talking about Palestinian human rights is not anti-formatism. Well, I mean, a question, how would one give the Palestinian perspective of living in extreme discrimination without mentioning the ongoing occupation and oppression Israel subjects them to? And of course, how that extends to, um, to the U.S. discourse. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the the campaign that was launched was a specifically calculated to erase the Palestinian narrative, to silence Palestinians and anyone that would speak out about Palestinian rights. Because what what happened was all over the local media, and and the way the media covered it was basically the way that the Zionists wanted it covered, insinuating that there was an anti-Semitic speaker and anti-Semitic comments made at a local high school that has enraged parents. That was the coverage. And then there were repercussions. There were demands that administrators be fired. The principal was put on administrative leave. And when anybody sees this kind of reaction to talk about basic Palestinian rights, at best, you don't want to touch the subject because it becomes too controversial. And that is exactly what these people want, to silence us and also to make it too costly for anybody else to try to give a platform for a Palestinian to speak about his or her experiences. That was the danger of it. As you said, I am, I'm used to the attacks and the smears, but how quickly the school succumbed to the pressure and their promise to make sure that mistakes like this don't happen again, that means to make sure that Palestinians aren't allowed to speak about their experiences again. And when it comes down to it, I did not even go into very detail. I suggested that Palestinians are occupied and living under an oppressive system and are campaigning for their freedom, which is all obviously true and very mild, a mild description of what's happening. This is what uh, Rabbi Asher Lopenton from the Jewish Community Relations Council, which is uh, basically the first organization to complain. And he said that he was upset and sad for the students that heard it and were hurt. Uh, said he's a believer in Palestinian rights and wishes that uh, there were a leader that could bring Jews and M Muslims and Americans together instead of uh, doing it in a divisive way. What do you say to this? You know, it, it has become very popular for you know, 
Israel apologist to say that they want Palestinian human rights too. Of course, you don't want to speak about, you don't want to say that you oppose human rights, but when you won't let a Palestinian share their experiences, it's as if Palestinians can only talk about their rights in a way that is okay with the people who would might get offended or uncomfortable by you know, naming what Israel is doing. And that is unacceptable. You're policing Palestinian talk. Palestinians need to not only, you know, accept their subjugation, but if they want to in any way overcome it, it has to be in a way that uh, that satisfies or doesn't make Zionists uncomfortable. Well, you know what? People have to get uncomfortable because the truth is that there are many people that are certainly comfortable with the status quo that discriminates against all kinds of people, whether we're talking about Palestine or whether we're talking right here in the United States. There are people that don't want to hear about civil rights, African-American rights, trans rights, all of these things. It makes them uncomfortable. But if we're going to, again, work towards a, a world where all people are treated equal and they have the same kind of freedom, dignity, and respect that we want for ourselves, then we have to sometimes get uncomfortable. I have no doubt that some of those students, unfortunately, the fact that I was wearing a keffiyeh, the fact that I identified as Palestinian, the fact that I used the word Palestine, that in and of itself made them uncomfortable because of the, the rhetoric and the perspectives that they are raised with to, to believe that Palestinian rights affect it is in a way counter to their own rights and their own existence. And that is unfortunate. That the, you know, that rhetoric, that indoctrination needs to be reversed. And so they need to hear not only what I said, but more of it. Predictably, uh, pro-Israel groups exerted maximum pressure on the school's uh, superintendent, Pat uh, Watson. Did you have an opportunity to present your side? I didn't. Um, neither Mr. Watson nor the principal nor anyone um, reached out to me in the the first few weeks, I did recently have a conversation with one of the school board members, and um, we just had an event that was organized by Jewish Voice for Peace that was meant to call out what was done and to uh, point out how the school's response was unacceptable. And to state very loudly and clearly that speaking out for Palestinian rights is not anti-Semitic. It was a very well-attended event, nearly 150 people, even some uh, Zionists did attend. There was some disruption uh, at first, but for the most part, um, strong presentations, including by a local rabbi, uh, a wonderful discussion, and a request that we continue to, to do more like this. Uh, and so now we're talking uh, with Jewish Voice for Peace and others about next steps so that we can continue this. And so there could be more talk about what's happening in Palestine and Palestinian rights, not less. So, um, I mean, we should underscore again how quickly anti-Israel rhetoric became conflated with anti-Semitism. And Pat Watson, the school superintendent, issued, I was looking at the statement that what, what was issued, and he goes on in a school of 
uh, no place for hate, etc. Anti-Semitic rhetoric was shared with our students and we recognize its devastating impact. Now, what is being cited as anti-Semitic? I didn't say what was, what did this, there's nothing about, they just throw that accusation at you and say anti-Semitic rhetoric, but what, what did he give, give any example of that anti-Semitic? No, nothing, and that's, that was pointed out by, you know, a number of people that they said anti-Semitic rhetoric or, you know, hate speech, but no one can point to anything that I said that would come even remotely close to either one. There is a pattern here. I mean, we see this happening time and time again. And sadly, those who are involved, or I'd say caught in the middle, like uh, the uh, principal, who ended up writing uh, an email uh, condemning what happened, apologizing, etc. And then at the end of the day, despite this, they end up losing their job, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't even help. But anyway, I, I don't want to get too much into this, but there is a bright side to this, which is how the students uh, um, articulately criticize the unfounded accusations being manufactured about your presentation. Talk about this. Yes, there was a, a emergency school board meeting a few days after the assembly, and I didn't attend that, but it was live-streamed, and a number of people um, who I know did attend, and they were just horrified because person after person was allowed to get up and attack me, even compare me to the KKK um, and, and other things. But a number of students spoke, including three of the uh, female women of color organizers of the Diversity Assembly got up and made a very strong statement refuting the lies uh, that, and it, as eloquent and strong as their statement was, what was disturbing is the media outlets that covered the school board meeting, covered the perspective of the parents that were sharing the lies and the dismay and calling me an anti-Semitic speaker. None of the out media outlets covered the perspectives of the students, of the organizers, or even of people that didn't agree with this hysteria. Uh, and it, that was unfortunate. That's certainly a criticism of the media. That's something that we have to, to work on. But the students have been strong in this. They have refused to apologize because it was demanded that they apologize for inviting me to speak. And they said that, that they will not apologize for giving a platform to a Palestinian voice or for uh, allowing me to speak. And so they have come under a lot of criticism because an unfortunate um, consequence or, or aftermath of this hysteria that was caused is that there were a lot of threats against students in the school. So a lot of uh, Arab and Muslim students reported being attacked, threatened, even death threats. And so these, the organizers have been bearing a, uh, a heavy weight on them that this was the aftermath of what was supposed to be a very positive assembly to spread awareness of, the, uh, of diversity and the dangers of discrimination because these forces, apologists for Israel and unfortunately ill-informed or, or bigoted parents also that were more interested in spreading lies did what they did 
just raise the level of hysteria it implanted in their students that this is the way that they should behave and proceeding with threatening Arab and Muslim students and just creating more divisiveness. And, you know, as you mentioned, there were disciplinary actions taken. So the principal was put on administrative leave and he has since resigned. And the superintendent, Pat Watson, also announced his early retirement, which was linked to this um, this diversity assembly. And so what kind of message does that give to students that this kind of hysteria and and lies and attacks and the way that these organizations and parents acted um, yields results? They, in a sense, won by getting these uh, administrators to lose their jobs, which was another reason why Jewish Voice for Peace and myself and others wanted to have a counter event, a community forum, to discuss this, the dangers of this, and how to act more appropriately and how to move forward and actually talking more, not less, about Palestinian rights, not letting these kinds of voices and these the, the hatred and lies uh, win. And like I said, that we had a very positive reaction and we hope to build on that more because as you said, it happens a lot. It happens across the country almost on a daily basis that people are attacked we're talking about Palestine, Palestinian rights, people lose their jobs and face other consequences. In this instance, it, with this incident, I, you know, I was attacked, subject of a smear campaign, but the, you know, these kind of forces, they couldn't, they didn't affect my job or anything like that, but they did uh, affect others' jobs, which is as, uh, you know, as horrific, as unacceptable and we hope, I hope, that by what we're doing here to counter this, to raise our voices loudly and to not shy away, to not be quiet about it, uh, can help raise awareness and provide support to other people who might be facing this across the country. I mentioned that Jewish Voice for Peace put out a strong statement. That statement was signed by 200 organizations nationally, including some big national organizations like the Center for Constitutional Rights, the National Lawyers Guild, the Poor People's Campaign, and many, many others, including some synagogues, Jew Jewish Voice for Peace, a rabbinical council. It was also signed by dozens of rabbis and pastors and over 1,100 other community activists from around the country. So it, um, I, I think it's a strong testament to the fact that people are aware of this silencing tactic and, and oppose it, and we need to build on that. I mean, I feel there is a sense uh, of panic, and, 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 and therefore they have doubled down on their attacks. Um, as I'm sure you're aware of, the recent polls released that there is a major shift towards sentiments to, towards Palestinians, especially amongst young uh, Americans uh, in the Democratic Party. This is uh, a Gallup poll that was just released a few weeks ago and uh, so they're doubling down on, on these attacks rather than trying to explain things. You ran as a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Congress in 2022. Do you think this played a role in the escalation of attacks against you to delegitimize you in further political candidacies? 
it's hard to tell. It's, um, you know, it's hard to be sure. Some people in their attacks that I've seen posted online and other places mentioned that I was also a political candidate and used that in some way to attack me. It, you, whether those people know it or not, in the district, in my district that I ran in, although I, you know, I was not ultimately successful, we actually felt that my stance on Palestine did not harm me in my district. I was attacked a lot from the outside, but we conducted a poll in my district amongst primary voters. And the response to me and my stance on, on Palestinian human rights was very positive. In fact, nearly 70% of those polled said that my position on cutting aid to Israel based on its human rights abuses was a reason to vote for me, almost 70%. Uh, and therefore, going back to what you said, uh, you know, the, the public perception is shifting. And this does make it, apologists for Israel very nervous. And so they will try to pull out all the stops. Unfortunately, they still have a majority of our political representatives. But that just goes to show you that our political representatives don't always represent what the people want and what the people are saying. Um, but, we, you know, we continue to do the grassroots work and we continue to mobilize to elect people that do represent us and we'll get there. I'm, I'm confident we will get there. What I always just think about is how many more people need to suffer and die until we actually get there and wake people up to what's happening. Hawaii Da'araf, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you so much for having me. That's the voice in the face of Huweda Araf, Palestinian-American activist who is being essentially attacked by the uh, Hasbarista and the pro-Israel groups for doing the very thing that is constitutionally protected in this country, Jamal, speaking about her own experience as a Palestinian-American, growing up, talking about her family, her life, and being Palestinian. But as, as you said in the intro to this, the, the pro-Israel Hasbaristas are going crazy because she dares speak about the history of the Nakba. She dares speak about occupation, oppression, and the apartheid state. It seems like they're going a little crazy about the fact that people have the right to speak about these issues, Jamal. Well, I mean, in our discussion, and I've mentioned that, I do, I do sense a, a, a feeling of panic and, yes. and I wouldn't say Hasbaristas, which is Hasbara propagandists in this country, but they're actually worse than this. Uh, in, in many instances, uh, those organizations should be registered as foreign agents because they right. are an arm of APAC, you know, uh, basically trying to shut down any debate and muzzle down, you know, criticism of Israel. And, and on top of this, conflating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. In, in her case, they started at attacking the the school, the superintendent and the principal for inviting her, and then they moved on to label her as an anti-Semite, which is a defamation without presenting any proof. They just throw that word to silence and scare off people, despite the need to learn about what's going on there. And as usual, and just, uh, uh, you know, just to add to what happened, he, uh, that 
attack on the principal, the attack on the superintendent, well, force a resignation, right? So they force a an apology. It's not going to affect the way there's a rough stature as a Palestinian American. No. Because she's she's not making money out of uh, all of this. She's, that's not her job. But now a, a principal who had the idea to invite her now had to resign. And before resigning, had to write an apology, an apology letter for what it's 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 a pattern here and this is the message is that when you succumb to these organizations and i i call them as hate groups and apologize for nothing they are they are never satisfied they will no, never be satisfied but they get empowered i mean that's part of the problem now they get empowered to do this and when when a constitutional right is so attacked like this and people are being forced to resign for giving uh, giving Huwait or anybody the you know the opportunity to speak about their experience, you know this this is going to empower the hate groups. This is going to empower these pro-Israel groups who are on the attack. And I think your point is a good one, Jamal. We've talked about this because of their uh, anxiety about losing the, you know, the the kind of justice analysis about what's happening in Palestine. They're losing. People people see the apartheid state for what it is. Over, overwhelmingly, Democrats, and it looks like the change in the demographics of this country, people are much more sympathetic and understand the oppressive practices of the apartheid state and support Palestinian rights for freedom and self-determination. So, I think that's the right analysis now. They're tr they're they're anxious. They're scared. They they see that they're losing, and so when they do that, when you when when they're in this situation, they up the ante. And I think I've said this before on the show. I'm going to say it again. They're overplaying their hand, and it's gonna it's it's gonna work against them for well, sure. Well, here's a simple litmus test before we move on because that was a very interesting interview. Replace Huaydarov by a Ukrainian-American and ask them to speak about their experience without mentioning Russia, without men or mentioning their, uh, an the occupation, occupation, without mentioning attacks on Kiev or any, any of these stories. You just like talk about your experience as an Im immigrant in this country without talking about that. And, and I'll, I'll stop right here, you know. Okay, well, we should talk about, uh, we'll, we'll come back to this because it's not going to stop. Uh, Jamal, Hader Adnan uh, dying from a hunger strike in an Israeli prison. This is really uh, devastating and catastrophic. I mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's an act Palestinian activist leader. Uh, he's gone on multiple hun hunger strikes for over 20 years. He's been in and out of Israeli detention. Um, he's been on a hunger strike for 86 days. And the Israeli prison authority let this man die. This is well un unacceptable. Well, I mean, this the story. There is a story within the story within the story. Number one, Khadr uh, Adnan was never tried, was never charged. Never. Okay. Never. He, you know, so twenty years. So, so he's been in and out of. Israeli, what they call it, detention or what have you, of course, prisons there many times. And he has never been charged 
which you know I read in the media some places like okay he's a you know a terrorist and and what have you he's a spokesperson to begin with right he's a spokesperson he's not a military person he's not militarized and uh, he was arrested this is the last time on February 5th and he refused you know food and refused by the way you mentioned he refused medical checks because he said I don't belong there this is like every time they just put him on administrative detention without a trial and it took basically he's 45 years old so he should be very very you know somebody in his prime healthy and it took 87 days 87 days and finally he succumbed and and died and before that he even went on hunger strike for for uh, a longer period of time and then they release him and then they bring him back again no trial no charges there you know right. and and in and and apartheid the apartheid states they they can arrest you and they don't have to provide any evidence they put it under secret evidence and that's what they do with every single palestinian so you don't have to even know what basically uh, their charges and that's that's his story his story in a nutshell they let him die and uh, rather than basically admitting that his arrest was a basically a false false basically well that's right jamal and i think you know the 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 couple of important points which you spoke about which need to be emphasized never been charged he's been arrested on and off for 20 years gets gets arrested goes to prison and they eventually release him so he's he's uh basically the forever kind of Palestinian prisoner along with thousands of other Palestinians who languish in Israeli prisons or military prisons without charges so this is goes against every uh uh you know international law that we know of if you're going to arrest somebody you're obligated to charge them they've never charged them on the issue of letting him die even if you refuse medical attention, Jamal, the international medical standard is you don't let somebody die. You could still give them treatment so that well, they don't die. But basically, he didn't want medical attention by, by Israel. It, so they could have brought, they could have, for example, taking him to Al Makassid Hospital or or got Karen Dick, Blue, I mean, the Red Cross, uh, Cross involved. I, sh- I, I should make a correction here. Uh, this is actually his longest uh, hunger strike. This is the the in 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 2012 he ended his uh, uh, w- which was his the, what brought attention to him international attention attention for uh, a 66 day uh, hunger strike that ended in in February right. 2012, which was at the time the longest known hunger strike by a Palestinian detainee in Israeli prison. So this is this time look. He went on even further than this. And uh, he's been arrested 11 times since 2004. And, 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 you know, so if you add the total period of time he, he spent in Israeli jail, eight years. Eight, three years so, without any charges, without any trial. So, you know what I call this, Jamal? Extrajudicial murder of a Palestinian civilian. It's an extrajudicial murder. Never been charged, put in prison. And then let left to die when he should have been given every attention through the ICRC and not allowed to die. So I consider this kind of a 
an extrajudicial murder of a Palestinian civilian. So, you know, the situation, I mean, this segues into our next segment, right? Jamal, you know, when the international community, and by the way, what's interesting about this, you know, his murder, his death, Khadr Adnan's uh, death, made the Washington Post, it made the New York Times. So we see cracks in the, uh, in the, in the, in the kind of, uh, kind of, uh, you know, ability of the mainstream media to avoid, you know, calling the apartheid regime, the Israeli regime, out on these charges. So the fact that his murder, his death, made some aspects of the mainstream media, I think, is kind of telling at this time. But at a time when the rest of the world is condemning the apartheid state, and and Joe Biden, in fact, is refusing to meet with Benjamin Netanyahu, we have uh, a Trump lapdog, Kevin McCarthy, going to Tel Aviv, going to the apartheid state, and visiting with a, with a pariah, with Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, my question is, before we talk about that, is he a lapdog, I mean, or did he remain as one, or is he running for president? Good question. I don't know if he's going to run for president. I think he's still a lapdog. I don't think he's going to run right now. He likes being the president. He likes being the speaker of the house. He is a lapdog. Uh, he, so w- this is what I said to a number of people. Happy birthday to the apartheid state. The apartheid state turned 75. They're celebrating 75 years of occupation, ethnic cleansing, and apartheid. When the rest of the world is shunning this, you have a Kevin McCarthy going and celebrating this apartheid state. And he gets away with it. Obviously, no other uh, politician uh, around the world except, you know, we'll talk about the EU, the head of the EU, who made an outrageous comment maybe in a bit. But uh, Kevin McCarthy also did something which Joe Biden is refusing to do. Kevin McCarthy said he'll invite Benjamin Netanyahu to to speak in front of the House of Representatives if Joe Biden doesn't invite him to the White House. I mean, the simple thing, just, I mean, this is not just the United States. He is not a member of the Biden administration. He's not. He, his party does not control the White House. He does not have the authority to signal the US, the United States diplomatic posture. I mean, so, you know, if we, just in simple terms, he's overstepping his authority. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous that, that when, Right. But can I remind you of something? When Obama was president and had a cool relation to Netanyahu, Netanyahu gave that outrageous speech to the House of Representatives. I believe that was 2009, 2010 at some point. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a classic example of bowing over to pro-Israeli pressure. The House of Representatives does not control the foreign policy, does not dictate foreign policy. That's the executive branch and through the State Department, and it is not the official U.S. policy at this point to invite Benjamin Netanyahu to the United States. So, yeah, he's a lapdog, for sure. He's having a love fest with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, shown by almost most world leaders, uh, the worst uh, and the most racist government in probably in, in, in modern history. Uh, and now he is basically g- having a love fest with him. 
Uh, he's inviting him to come to the U.S. to the, you know, and uh, he got invited by Benjamin Netanyahu to address the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, and he's, by the way, second uh, person to do that as far as a house speaker. The other one is your favorite, Newt Gingrich. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> another darling uh, for, another for, darling. for uh, Israel. Yes. Well, but but you know let let let's speak let's be clear. Um, he has the calculation, Kevin McCarthy, that this is going to serve him. They're looking at wedge issues. They believe that, and it's mind-boggling to say this, but I'll say it. But Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans believe that Joe Biden and the Democrats are not pro-Israel enough. So they're they're kind of doing this in a way because they think it's going to shore up their their support in the next election. It's outrageous. I think it's going to backfire, but I think that's part of his crazy calculation. Well, uh, I mean, I still feel that he might just throw his hat in the ring. I don't think so. He's 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 loving being speaker, and he loves being the slapdog. I don't think we can end this show without the 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 kind of head of the European Union offering her birthday wishes to the apartheid state. It was outrageous what she said. She said something to the effect, happy birthday, and uh, you know, the apartheid state, they made the desert bloom. The classic kind of colonial rejectionist of reality statement. It was, it was a complete denial of apartheid and complete denial of the reality there. So uh, I guess Kevin McCarthy has other company right now. Well, I mean, uh... You know, this is uh, basically uh, someone, um, you know, uh, when you're talking about basically the EU leader, uh, uh, the foreign minister, is that? No, no, I'm Yeah, sorry. the foreign minister. Ursula, Ursula von der Leyen. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, using basically a racist trope in, in a speech making Israel statehood and anniversary. And uh, it looks like she's like 75 years behind the... Uh, Reality and reality, when Israelis themselves uh, don't don't believe this nonsense that was created by early Zionists and by the the likes of uh, Golda Meir and and others. Hey, all I gotta say is happy birthday, apartheid. If you're celebrating seventy five years of oppression, occupation, ethnic cleansing, and land theft, happy birthday, apartheid. Unbelievable. Well, on this note, uh, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we will talk to you next week. See you next week. Mm-hmm.